When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, a man who needs no introduction, win, lose, or draw, he always goes big. Billy McFarlane of Firefest, thank you so much for joining us here today. But if you don't mind, I'm going to steal that intro and, and reuse it. I think it was pretty clear and concise. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, okay, in terms of, you know, if I'm coming up with captions and descriptions and, and maybe I should be charging 1800 bucks an hour for that, uh, you made a bit of a splash this weekend or on Friday on Twitter offering your services to make pretty much any brand go viral. Uh, and then, you know, then put the dollar sign on that and try, uh, offering your services for $1,800 an hour for marketing consulting. Uh, so let's hear it. Why are you an elite marketer who's worth 1800 bucks an hour? The world right now is so insane. I literally had no followers on Twitter, mm-hmm. posted my first ever thread on like a Sunday afternoon while half watching football on the couch, mm-hmm. pissed off 1.4 million people. And <laughs> then the mainstream media picks up like one link on my like link in the bio program, you know, my Calendly consulting fees. And now I'm getting booked out for $1,800 an hour phone calls. So to everybody pissed off, thank you very much. And to everybody who's reaching out, I'm super pumped and let's do this. Okay, so uh, uh, it, I think, you know, don't give me this aw shuck stuff. You're the master marketer here. So I tripped and <laughs> fell into a really successful viral thread. Um, but no, honestly, you know, what what skills and, and clearly, as, as I mentioned originally, win, lose, or draw, always yeah. big. Um, and I think also, uh, and zooming out and seeing some of the stuff that you did before Firefest. Um, yeah. You know, you cert- there's certainly a case to be made that you're an elite marketer, but we'd like we'd like to hear it. what do you think are the skills and qualities that you've exhibited? Some naturally, some that I'm sure you tested out uh, over the years that you know might suggest that you're worth eighteen hundred bucks an hour or that you can make any brand go viral. So I think the most important thing I learned is like what I suck at and what I can do, and like how to kind of focus and make what I can do the best I can do, and then everything else just fucking ignore and get much better people to help me with. Um, I'm really good at getting people on base. So I can go from zero to one time and time again, kind of on cue. And I do that by coming up with some sort of like marketing hack or wave, finding crazy people with audiences who are willing to come together to make this announcement. And then actually getting these people who generally hate and are adverse to putting in the work to somehow focus and get this shit done and get this launched. So I'm not here to scale some like massive brand, but if the brand has a new product or if it's a new brand and they're trying to get on base, like I can get you in the game and get you your first customers much faster than anybody else. But I'm not gonna like manage your ad spend, do all that boring shit, and, and which I suck at. Okay, so d- does this seem like some of the learnings from the Firefest that really you are, you're, you know, maybe a CMO or a co-founder, maybe a founder, but not a CEO, and that that does seem, and this is this is something that that people do need to recognize, right? There are some people who are meant to manage businesses. There's some people yeah. who are meant to start businesses, and sometimes those are the same person, but often not. So is this a recent learning of yours? I need guardrails, and it's like. I fucked up all of my positive things by not understanding like where to stop and where to get help before. And obviously like the mistakes I made were just so much worse than any of the good things I ever did that I just totally took away from all of that. So yeah, I need those guardrails. I'm like, well, that's a company who's going to hire me to help the market or on my own internal team. Like I'm still learning super, super early, but I think it's like admitting I need help and trying to find that help. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and we'll get to the specifics of, of some of your recent experiences and your path here. But um, would you say that you're on somewhat of a redemption tour or salvation tour? Are those words that come to mind that, that are conscious for you? I just have like such a fucking mountain to climb before that word redemption is even relevant. And I have to like rebuild trust with so many people and I need to pay back a lot of people, too. And I think personally, until I can look everybody in the eye who I know I wronged and who know they were wronged, and we can both be like, yeah, you figured out a way to to pay me back. And that's like emotionally with trust, financially, et cetera. There's there's no such thing as redemption. So 
I think it's been like a media coined term, but in reality, I think it's more of like a trust building tour where it's realizing my downfalls and realizing where I can add value back to people and then saying, hey, if I can do this for 10 years, maybe there's a way in which people get some sort of meaningful payback. Got it. Got it. Uh, and one question before we get kind of into the, you know, a more chronological discussion of, of what transpired in your experiences. Um, how old are you? You're 31? I'm 31. Yeah. Um, you familiar with a gentleman named Bruce McNall? I'm not, no. Got it. This is probably just a little bit before your time. But uh, interesting, right. I think probably interesting for you to, to dive into this and for a lot of our listeners out there. Bruce McNall was a guy who was very prominent in Los Angeles in the 80s. He owned, uh, he was a self-made guy, made his money in collectibles and ancient coins, um, bought the Los Angeles Kings from Jerry Buss, the, the owner right. of the Lakers. And he brought, everyone forgets LA, you know, it's like, what the hell is LA doing with the hockey team? And then all of a sudden yeah. they bring in Wayne Gretzky. Bruce McNall brought in Wayne Gretzky, and he was not a glamorous-looking guy, little heavy set, but he became glamorous because he owned the Kings when they brought in Gretzky and totally revitalized yeah. the brand, and he wasn't just owning the Kings. He was out there in the community. Him and Gretzky went in on a bunch of businesses together, and then it all fell apart, and it turned out that he was falsifying loans with big collateral for about $260 million, and he had a downfall there. And it's always interesting to me because he became, he just kind of disappeared, right? And and nobody remembers him or recalls him, but this dude was very prominent in LA in the 80s and early yeah. 90s. And he wrote a book, uh, an autobiography, his tell-all called It Was Fun While It Lasted. And it was a great, wow. great, great name for the book. Fantastic book. I suggest everybody out there go check it out. I imagine, yeah, I think you should go take check it out. And one thing he said in the book, uh, in describing where you know he might have gone wrong, um, a journalist said, or someone who, had, who was involved with him said, you know, something. I think Bruce's problem is he wants to be like too much. Do you think yeah. that was a problem of yours? I was just like the world's worst person at delivering bad news, hundred percent. So I wanted everybody to like me, everybody think I was like the most generous, the best, the most fun friend. And I was so afraid to do anything that would ruin like that opinion or perspective of myself and other people's eyes. And like that literally led to my downfall. And it's funny when I see that trait in other people now where like everything they're doing is to try to make me like them. I just run away so quickly because I just like know how toxic that really is. And while the intentions might be good, you just can't become like, of an honest and successful human being if you're not able to deliver the truth. Mm -hmm. No doubt, no doubt. And we'll we'll circle back on that soon as we get into more of the specifics about fire. But let's go back. One thing that you described in that very successful Twitter thread was your first hustle. And it involved uh, New York real estate and real estate brokers. This was one I, you know, I've heard about in, in the documentaries. They mentioned Magnesis, but hadn't heard about this one. Um, and I was wondering, so what was that first hustle, you know, when you moved to New York at, at 19 years old and was living in a crappy apartment and was like, sure. wait a second, I need to use my hustling skills to leverage myself up. What, what did you, what was the observation and what was that business? So I was my freshman year of college. And I just like found a notebook actually recently where I'm writing down like, what is a venture capitalist? Like, what is angel investing? And then maybe like four months later at the time, I became the youngest person to ever raise its digital venture capital. And that kind of kicked off this mentality of how can I find something that I shouldn't be able to have and then make that thing actually possible and accessible. So whether it's like dropping out of like my school in rural Pennsylvania and moving to downtown Manhattan, now I'm there, I have a couple of like venture capital dollars in the bank and I'm meeting all these like sharky New York City brokers, which I'm sure that people listening are familiar with. And some of and, them are those sharky brokers, yeah, I assure you. Yeah. Exactly. And like, who the fuck can afford these, you know, penthouse apartments that are renting for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month and up and, you know, worth many, many multiples of that. And that basically intrigued me. I'm like, oh, I thought like living in New York was the dream of my 19 year old, like boy child self, but now- I want a penthouse apartment. Like, how can I make that happen? So rode the coattails basically of the social network. And this is like 2010, 2011, where everybody thinks the path to fast riches are tech startups and made myself like a nice bio, in my email, like Spling founder and CEO, you know, put a couple of good links in there and emailed the brokers representing these like top tier apartments. And just did a really good job at portraying myself as this like enigma, like 19 year old tech founder. And of course, the first question they had to ask me was like, what the fuck are you working on where you can afford to rent one of these apartments? And that just gave me the best platform to pitch 
myself and my company Spling. And in exchange, like these guys all wanted equity, right? They saw the movie. They realized that like, hey, if this thing sells in five years, like that's how I make my $100 million. Like, what can I do to get equity in your company? Said, hey, well, we're raising money. And so I'd love to meet the guy who owns this place. Yeah. And that led to introduction to investors and then all these crazy string of New York City apartments. Yeah, that was an interesting phase. Call it 2011, 12, 13, yeah. because uh, the general business community finally starts noticing the startup world and seeing, seeing the number numbers involved, but doesn't know the lingo yet. So if you know the lingo, you can just pull so much wool over so many people's eyes and really season business. You, you would talk to people who weren't in the startup uh, uh, field or startup world at that point. You know, Anyone in, in old economy businesses, finance, private equity, you start slinging around a few tech terms and they think you're they think you're Zuckerberg I mean it's crazy and you know there are various degrees to which someone could someone could or could not take advantage of that and it seemed seemingly you did um I think the, the reality was that at this point I wasn't really overselling much it's like it was true I, I was super young raised venture capital was building what I thought was going to be this massive game-changing tech business so I was like just being myself but I just like wasn't afraid to try to put myself in rooms that I just didn't know how to belong or like didn't really know how to act. And that just led to questions and I was good at answering those questions and it just kind of created opportunity. Okay, so that's an interesting one because this is also a thread, right? Of someone who is good and talented at creating relationships with high net worth individuals and getting them to invest. And I mean, there's a few people, you before FIRE, you had a track record of getting some interesting people to, to finance some of your ventures. One was Aubrey McClendon. Um, was there any, you know, that was featured in the documentary. Was there anybody else who was maybe, let's call it a name, a notable person from the business world that pre-fire that was one of your benefactors or investors? Yeah. So I truthfully haven't watched the docs yet and therefore I don't want to oust anybody that wasn't ousted, but I think like my weirdness compared to other like tech startups was I had a really eclectic investor base where it's like I had you know, head of media, head of advertising, head of finance. I was like attracting titans in their industry who were essentially coming to me for two reasons. Like one, just like purely invest in tech, but two, they were almost benefiting from this tornado effect of crazy personalities that I was attracting. So this finance guy was meeting like the titan of media who he wouldn't usually interact with like every day while he's like running his bank, right? So it was kind of this like crazy consortium of really powerful people who didn't interact much outside of their day-to-day life. And I was that weird link that brought everybody together. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and so that led to Magnesis pretty quickly, yes. right? That that was pretty early in, in your, you know, in career as a founder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll let people check out what the, the, Kind of thoughts. So essentially, a very exclusive credit card that was could be used at exclusive venues in Manhattan. I and mean, maybe if there's any additional color you want to add to what that business was and what the thesis was. Basically, trying to give 25 year old kids access to everything they wish they had in New York, but they couldn't actually afford it. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be one of your core theses in turn, in, as a business person is that people will pay for access to exclusive and scarce experiences or things. And that, you know, your uh, attempts to monetize that has been a, a constant, uh, a, a, a consistent thread in your activities. Would it not be? That seems to the case. Yeah. I think there's like two core businesses, right? Like people will pay for dating, which, you know, not super, super interested in, or people will pay to better themselves, which I'm really interested in. So if I can help someone better themselves by introducing them to interesting people that could change their lives or showing them different experiences that just like broaden their horizons and increase their exposure. That's the whole arena I'd love to play in. And I truly believe like those are two of the most powerful like innate desires and therefore like the most impactful way to change someone's life. Do you think that there's, because there's a thin line, right? And understanding that, okay, by all means, there's some uh, exclusive, uh, uh, somewhat unattainable experiences that you know, or people that you can expo- that you you can give people access to that, right? Um, and there's a very thin line between that and really trying to sell a lot of sizzle as opposed to steak and things that rest on a lot of of glamour and and you know status enhancement, right? Um, do you consider that that's that maybe you've sl- you you know you slid on the wrong side of that thin line and that we're relying a little bit too much on stuff that was very that solved very much for for high glamour and status? Yeah, and I think like one of my mistakes was I didn't know when to stop. I was 
really good at like once again going from nothing to getting on base. But once I was on base, like for example, Magnesis, and I had you know a couple thousand customers and people interested in this product, I didn't need to keep on like pushing the boundaries as much as I did in order to succeed. I should have like taken a step back and realized like, hey, I went far enough to get out there to the point where I have customers and I have traction and I have an opportunity where based on my like hard work, I can succeed. And that's more than most people ever get in their lifetime. And just like kept, kept pushing and got caught up in this never ending search for glamour, which never ends well. And as the book said, it was fun while it lasted. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Feels like you can always point back to Scarface for some reason for the lessons yeah. about some sort of businesses or things that uh, that run a little hot, right? And you know, Frankie yeah. says, "Hey, the ones that are into the chicas and the partying and whatnot, they don't last." And turned out, well, you know, didn't Frank? Uh, it didn't take too much of his own advice, but it turned out right. Uh, it turned out to be true for Scarface. Um, yeah. Our boy Ja Rule, how'd you get in touch with Ja Rule, and how did that relationship develop? Ja Rule is ducking me right now. I called him out to charity <laughs> MMA fight where all the proceeds would go back to paying the Bahamas uh -huh. and his like behind the scenes response is not to me, but to like the, you know, promotion companies has just been so lame. And just, just Do you pathetic. think that job Take one night to put yourself on the line, to pay a lot of people back, do some good. Do you think that jaw through, let you take the fall? I think I was the one who was guilty and certainly deserved. I know it's kind of cliche, but deserved everything that came of it. And I don't think anybody else should have gone to jail. I just like think it's funny that the street rapper who like talks about killing snitches and everything like that can't step up and fight the tech nerd for one oh, day. Wow. So this is it. Okay. Our boy B Mac is calling you out right now. Jaw rule. Uh, um, um, it's like, it's like Apollo and Rocky, Rocky too. Okay. Yeah. You know, eventually the, the call out works. So if this podcast is the vessel for this to happen, believe it or not, I've had my experiences with jaw, uh, in my early man, this is fun, a funny place. We I'm intersect. Um, yeah. <laughs> a buddy of mine, uh, was managing who I had no idea was in the music business. I reconnected with 10 years after high school, um, maybe 2010, okay. 2011. He's like, yeah, I'm managing Ja Rule. At the time I was helping advise one of the probably first SaaS platforms for creating, uh, uh, mobile apps for, you know, musicians and content creators and whatnot. It's a big recording artist. And he was like, yeah, let's get Ja on this thing. And went out to Ja Rule's house in, uh, uh, out in like Woodland Hills or, or Tarzana or God knows what. I don't ask me why yeah. so many rappers live in 818, but that they do. And, uh, and yeah, and we, it was like early that era when, you know, when you could, you could literally get anything done based on a few buzzwords and trying to get Ja Rule as one of the early ones on, on this, uh, the SaaS platform for an app. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess he's, he's disappeared from, uh, anything Firefest and who, I don't know, God knows what he's doing right now, but you know, every time, every time somebody comes at Ja Rule, he's like, yo, I sold 15 million and he did. So got to give it up to him for selling 15 mil, but Ja, your story's not all told yet. Okay. And your story with Billy McFarlane's not told yet. So we, we may need to get you guys back together and, and somehow, uh, it could be the steel cage, could be MMA, could be boxing, but the offer is there. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, and of course he is, but we'll see if we can make that happen. Um, I think you need your ringside seat now to talk shit that you're the one to make the fight happen. So. <laughs> and that's definitely happening. Um, okay, so let's get to Firefest. Um, what what it, it, you had described it at some point uh, that I saw as a bit of a, an extension of things that you saw with Magnesis, and mm -hmm. and, and listen, and, and I absolutely believe you that you wanted to that you found a an island that you thought was magic and you wanted to share this experience and you thought you could create something truly unique but maybe tell us a little bit about the genesis of firefest um and you know in a vision of success what it looked like so i've had now what six years to think about this and one of the hard parts for me is understanding that everybody else hasn't had that much time to really reflect on it so i think you need to be cognizant of that but one of the things that I had to think about is like, why? And part of this is good and part of this is, you know, my biggest flaw, but I was so desperate to share what I truly thought was this magical island. And truly part of it was like, I just wanted to show people like what was out there and how amazing it was. Part of it was also selfish that I wanted to be this guy that was taking you to this place that you had never seen anything like anywhere else in the world. 
And a music festival was never my dream. It was just a vehicle for me to show off to thousands of people what I thought I had found. So I had been running trips to this island for a number number of years, mostly for Magnesis members, mm-hmm. then eventually for some of the really? artists. Yeah. And like wow. we'd done it dozens of times. And literally on a trip where I was showing off to one of my childhood high school friends, he had the terrible idea of doing a music festival here for all your Magnesis members. Mm-hmm. And that's how fire was formed. So fire was a culmination of years of bringing people there and wanting to step it up and just wanting to find that vehicle to show more people the crazy experiences and like the life-defying stunts that we were pulling off in the middle of this. What were some of those life-defying stunts? Everything from doing zero gravity in a plane to, you know, diving with sharks in areas where we probably shouldn't be diving. And just like taking 30 people to an Island where maybe two other people actually lived and just running amok for a long weekend and, coming together with people who otherwise kind of have their walls up in New York or LA or Miami. And now we're all in like survival mode, pushing the boundary mode, just forming these incredible relationships. And like, mm-hmm. there's truly some magic to this experience. Interesting. Um, and would you say that, okay, so a music festival and, and, and a lot of the story around fire is how it synchronizes so much with so many of the tropes about millennial culture, right? In yeah. terms of, um, just a, a natural inclination towards entrepreneurship, influencer culture, and one would definitely be music festival culture. And I imagine you're like, okay, wait a second, you know, music festivals are uh, are a great vest if you want to show something off and you want to sure. be a big shot and you also want to make money. It's like, okay, music fest, and and you want to have a reason to funnel in tons of influencers and you know high status people of of that generation. Music festivals are a great way to do it. Yeah. 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 Um, so how, from a business perspective, how did this get started? Were you trying to rate, you know, you threw out the process as I think you probably, what I gathered, you were getting way behind on a number of vendor bills. You realized this whole, you know, throwing an epic life changing, never before seen concert thing is a little more, uh, uh, difficult and challenging organizationally than anticipated, but you know, you were raising money throughout the process and you definitely paid a lot of bills, just not enough bills. Um, but what business wise did fire look like right off the bat? So Fire started as an app and the entire concept of that was removing all this like smoke and mirrors nonsense that exists in the entertainment industry. And it was all about connecting buyers, which could be a nightclub, it could be a private person directly with talent to bring them offers for appearances and sponsorships and other opportunities. And the app was maybe two to three months old when I got completely sidetracked by the festival and at the time justified the festival as this like amazing marketing vehicle for the app. But once we announced the festival, obviously it took a life of its own and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. When did you start to notice some problems? When did you get the inkling that, wait a second, I may, I may be in in over my head here. Um, And uh, you know, and one thing that you mentioned, and this seems to be a more holistic uh, observation of yours is that, you know, and also some of the, some of these, um, some of the, the aspects of entrepreneur culture, right? Grind, you know, uh, create a reality distortion force field where everything's positive and I can accomplish anything. And, you know, you described it as you challenged yourself to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And when that is, that's something that's very common to that, you know, the millennial generation of entrepreneurs that like, okay, wait, the, I'm going to look at that first generation of Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, uh, uh, tech entrepreneurs that hit it big and they clearly show these um, these character traits that allow them to be big you know successful entrepreneurs and they've got to be uncomfortable being comfortable being uncomfortable because you're not taking a job and getting a nice salary and you're being so enterprising right um, yeah. did you know it, tell us about you know one when you you started to notice some problems and two what was it and I imagine as you described your your internal monologue to be comfortable being uncomfortable and always trying to tackle any challenge probably signaled you in the wrong direction there. So there's this moment that completely switched my mentality of basically fire. It was literally a Friday evening. I was 24. I was hungover as hell from like a long Thursday night the night before. And I'm alone in my apartment, like literally just like shoving ice cream in my face in bed. And it's like <laughs> five, five o'clock on a Friday. I'm like, this is fucking pathetic. Like 
Magnesis is going pretty well at this point. I raised a bunch of money for the Fire app, but it's not like too crazy yet. And now I'm stuffing my face with like ice cream alone in like a September, October in New York City. I said, you know what? Fuck this. I haven't been back in the Bahamas all summer. Like I need to go right now. Got on the phone and it's like started calling modeling agencies, started calling my friends. And then like, you know, five hours later, we're, we're there like on Norman's Key back in the Bahamas with some of the most interesting people in the world and creating content that would ultimately result in one of the most viral media campaigns on social media, like ever at the time. And that was my entire thing. It's like, we, in a matter of two hours, I organized like this incredible group that made the fire festival, you know, idea conceived, nothing can stop us. And we were just like being lazy and we need to stop like worrying about what the problems are today. We just need to keep pushing forward and just create this culture where every problem in front of us didn't really matter. And I just couldn't zoom out and see like how tall the mountain was that I was trying to climb. I was just so focused on how to move the one little pebble in front of me. Mm -hmm. So Bruce McNall in his book, I mean, he mentions it. He's like, at some point, man, the lies pile up and sure you can come up with some tactics to suppress them, but they're going to manifest some way somehow in anxiety in your, you know, in, in his he admitted, you know, in his own consumption and uh, alcohol and food. Um, how did that, you know, were you sleeping? How did that anxiety that, that a lot of it, I'm sure you were suppressing that was hanging over your head. How did that manifest itself? Got super fat. So I can definitely, uh, definitely feel his pain there. But I think for me, I suppressed it by trying to raise the stakes. And I kept saying the problems I have today will go away if I get to the next level. So if I'm $2 million short on bills today, if I raise the stakes to some other crazy level tomorrow, like what's $2 million, that problem goes away. And my issue was I kept actually pulling that off. So I saw the $2 million problem and I get stable, but that was never enough. And I didn't have the guardrail. So now I create a $10 million problem. Okay, like let's have a $10 million problem, right? Now we have a $40 million problem. And at a certain point where this wasn't practical to solve those problems in such a short period of time. So my entire issue was pulling off tasks that I shouldn't have been able to pull off and then not realizing like, hey, I'm fucking lucky to be here. I'm like, I'm lucky to be above water and like stable today. Maybe I shouldn't like go for this next moonshot without like taking a night off. Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest problem. Yeah. And that you were able to solve quite a few big problems, but what you were trying to put together was just so ambitious and difficult that even, you know, you could, you could rack up a dozen massive wins and they still, still weren't enough to bring this thing to full fruition of what it, it truly, of what it needed to be, because there's just no, there's not room for air. Okay. When you have something that's this visible with this meant, you know, that is supposed to be this exclusive and luxurious, you can't miss at all. Right. You know, and that came down to an immaturity and inability to zoom out and so caught up on the small wins and this ability to amplify those small wins to motivate a large number of people while still as a group getting laser focused, not understanding like we can't climb this mountain in four months before the storm comes. So we're all going to die but still celebrating that we took one more step further that day. So yeah, it's kind yeah. of like madness and just immaturity. Yeah, not the psychology behind it. It is fascinating. Uh, into some more of the specifics. I mean, the uh, the one thing, that, the image that will just stick in my mind, it's the that styrofoam, uh, the styrofoam yeah. lunch. I mean, how did that... <laughs> How did that become, I mean, when posed with the, the need to provide some food, I mean, was there just some cafeteria on the island that was like, all right, we got some food and like, all right, guys, give them something. I mean, how did that come? How did that come about? So this one bothers me the most. And my number one response, I think like we had a thousand ish guests at the festival site before we canceled it. If you served a thousand cheese sandwiches to a bunch of entitled 20 something year olds, you would have a thousand pictures minimum floating around social media. As far as I know, there's only one picture of a cheese sandwich. And the true story is these two kids got high, went up to Andy King, the caterer, who I'm sure most people have heard of, and said, Andy, all we want is a cheese sandwich. And he made them a cheese sandwich. And that picture became our downfall. Wow. Well, I'll admit that was the first image that I saw. I was like, okay, wait yeah. a second. Whoa, something, something's up here. Um, you guys say that you, you say that you had a lot. Sorry, I'm point for one second. Uh, I'm going to do a cheese, grilled cheese pop-up in New York for a week where I'm literally sitting at the griddle just making sandwiches all to pay back the Bahamas. So I think that'll be fun. I'll be back after this quick break. 
There you go. No, that, that listen in terms of how to uh, uh, the meta commentary on yeah. the controversial issues, obviously, is capitalizing on that makes total sense. And hey, goes to, you know, goes to the, the, the notion of good marketing instincts. Um, so and this is funny because this is how we connected. And I said, uh, hey, did you just watch too much Wayne's World, too? Because in Wayne's World, I mean, people people got to be honest. I was like, I, I, well, how does nobody else realize this in Wayne's World, too? They decide to throw a music festival, are completely in over their head, make a bunch of promises about which bands are going to show up, have no idea what they're doing, try to put it together behind the eight ball, and then magically, the day of the festival, Aerosmith just magically falls from the sky and performs, and it goes off perfectly. I mean, it's a little too, like, what's going on here with Firefest? It was like, wait, did you just uh, overlearn the lessons of Wayne's World 2? Did you even see that movie? I didn't see it, and I was hoping that Kanye <laughs> would have been our Aerosmith, but it didn't happen. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so what was going on with the the musical acts? Because, I mean, booking for concerts, uh, booking for music festivals always always a little yeah. strange, and particularly at this point, you know, uh, a lot of people will, you know, they'll, they'll take a small down payment or uh, they don't expect to get paid until the day of the concert. And you could probably string up a bunch of them along. You claim that you had 27 of 30 acts booked and that really Blink-182 was the domino that tipped everything else over. Um, give it to us straight. What was going on? Yes, yeah, so we had 30 artists. Uh, 28 were paid in full. Other two were paid for the first weekend, not the second weekend. The only one to actually cancel ahead of time was Blink-182. Everybody else was either on the main island or on the way there when the festival was canceled. So that's actually been published in like the bankruptcy courts and docs. So all the artists are paid. Um, I think like one or two gave back 10% of the money. The rest of them kept it. So yeah, they all have the money and they all got paid. Wow. 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 Yeah. Like when you two, I think I paid half a million dollars. So Uh I asked them right after to give it back to ticket holders. They told me to fuck off. So fuck them. Interesting. You know, I know some people involved in them, so I will I will caveat the fuck them. But hey, we're we're yeah. trying to tell you know tell the story from Billy's perspective here. Um, some of the other highlights from uh, from what has been portrayed at least publicly, Andy King, take one for the team. Go you know maybe administer a little oral to get some water through customs. Did that happen? I, I don't think he did anything. I, no, I did know. he? But what was the request made? The request, like, if for any request... Hey, there's no secrets here, man. You're doing a great job owning up to everything. So let's hear yeah. it. You come, be, be straight with us. I am sure I made a comment to Andy King in jest. Uh-huh. I have no <laughs> idea like what that exact like comment was, but I'm sure I said, go do whatever it takes. Go suck his dick and get this water. Like, more of like, go suck up to this guy. We're not going to pay whatever money he's asking for. Just go get the water. And I didn't even know it was a thing until... I, you know, saw the daytime talk shows in jail talking about it. So that, that was news to me when it came out. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So speaking of jail, uh, what was the moment where you realized that going to jail was a possibility that this was maybe a reality for you? Um, so I got arrested for the first time shortly after the festival and they basically arrested late on a Friday night and sent to the Brooklyn detention center. And I have this cellmate who has like a 10 year sentence for heroin dealing at the time. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get bail tomorrow morning. And he looks at me like, I'm fucking crazy. He's like, kid, you ain't getting bail. Yeah. No, yeah. let me tell you how it works out morning. here. Like you're, mm-hmm. yeah, like you're retarded. Lo and behold, at like 7am on Saturday, McFarland, get your ass down here. I got out of jail on a Saturday morning. So now I'm like, Oh, all right. Like this shit's not that bad. I'm not really going to jail and was on bail for a year. Started fucking around. They didn't like it. They basically came and raided my house at the time and revoked my bail. And uh, that was like the scariest and worst day of my life. Wow. Wait, which, when was that? 2018? 2018, yeah. Okay. Going into prison. Yeah. You say the scariest day of, of your life. How many of those fears, uh, how, how, you know, how real were that in terms of the actual experience? How many of those fears uh, materialized? So I think the time was my biggest fear. And like the whole crux of the fire festival, except for the lying, which like is the worst part was my inability to understand like patience and time. I was trying to take over the world in four months and that was like impossible. So when I went to jail and I knew it was going to be years, I had never been able to plan for, or even anticipate like years in advance in my 25 year old mind. So I couldn't fathom the amount of time that I was going to be locked away 
And I just couldn't come to terms with it. It was really fucking hard for me. And so, Jail, you've mentioned, uh, you're speaking with Jordan Harbinger, who's awesome. And, you, you know, you mentioned a lot of, of lessons that you learned from being in solitary confinement, um, mm-hmm. being left with nothing but yourself. Uh, yeah. If we, you know, he's a big proponent of stoic philosophy. And that's something that's also very... Uh, very du jour of millennial kind of hustle business culture and whatnot. And, you know, the Stoics are very much of, uh, you'll, you'll look into the abyss and see your, uh, see nothing but your character, you know, or only, you have only your character to rely on. Um, how was that type of isolation and being left with nothing but your own mind and, and the growth lessons and observations that you made from it? I think the hardest part was like the oscillations between anger, fear, and gratitude and just not being able to control those emotions. Like realizing that you have no control, that your family is suffering because of you, that there potentially is no end in sight. Just like, it just destroys you as a person. But then you hear someone down the hall screaming who's been locked in solitary for four years and has 20 years left. And you're like, fuck, well, at least I have a chance or at least I have someone on the outside who might be fighting for me right now. And that kind of instills you with this like gratitude and hope. And it's just like this terrible experience when you have no one else to run your thoughts by, your mind just goes crazy. And without the Saturday check of humanity and relationships and friends, it's hard to manage and contain your thoughts. Interesting. No, that's it, putting a person under that type of duress and stress and, and seeing, you know, it's, it's been the uh, the subject of of experiments in, in controlled settings, but, you know, it was not a controlled setting. You know, you had to, to go experience that and see, you know, where your mind took you and, and you know, and, and how your how your mind and your body were talking to each other and talking to yourself. Um, and, you know, how did you navigate? I don't know. This was, uh, I imagine, a white collar prison um but were there dangerous situations and relationships and encounters that you had to navigate that you know that could have been physically dangerous so i actually started at a white collar jail Mm -hmm. got in trouble pretty quickly for trying to get some contraband right yes Uh so kept getting progressively sent to worse and worse places um did the last like year and a half to two years at a jail just outside detroit michigan so certainly was like your gamut of Midwest Detroit gangbangers. So certainly was not many financial crimes. You weren't at the country club. Yeah, no, not the country club there. It might've been like out of 2000 people, maybe 10 financial crimes there. So Uh it wasn't many, but yeah. So how Um, did you navigate those situations with those people? The hard thing about the higher up jails is that they're very socially behind and Having spent my entire adult life in Manhattan, which like is very socially liberal, it felt like I was back in this era that I'd only like seen on TV or, you know, watched in movies, whether it's like the racism, the social norms, like the slurs, everything just feels like you're frozen back in like the 1960s. So being this 25 year old kid who met and lived with everybody in New York, like didn't know how to adjust to that in the beginning. So that was a little hard. Was that, I mean, because we, we think most, uh, a lot of the representations of prison recently in pop culture have been for big cities where there's a, uh, almost, you know, these racial battles, right? The, the, the gang yeah. hostilities are racial, right? Oz or, or whatever, but this yeah. was not a racially diverse prison. It, it was racially diverse, but it's as simple as like in the food area, they call it the chow hall. There is a line for the black guys and a line for the white guys. And no matter who you were or what you did, you just, you couldn't cross those lines and like, and no one thought it was racist or weird. And I was like, oh, of course this is how it is. And like, there's like simple things like that, that obviously manifest in like larger cultural situations there. It just, it's just different and, and weird. But you, uh, everybody recognized here are the rules. Here's how we do things here. And yeah. if you observe them and, and don't cause too much of a ruckus and don't step on anybody's toes, you can avoid the worst of it. What's actually interesting is that the quote, like rougher prisons, I actually felt it to be a little bit more peaceful because there were like less petty situations, if that kind of made sense. Like if you fell into line and you weren't bothering anybody, you're pretty much okay. And like the biggest thing is that in the more gang controlled prisons, it's all about making money. So like they're selling drugs really? or they're doing their things to make money. And uh-huh. if you're not making money and like not getting in the way of their business, like 
No one, no one has time to like, worry about you. You're, you're out of the way. So prison commerce, how does that work? What is it like the movies where they're trading cigarettes? Is there money floating around the system? What are they doing? Yeah, so it's all stamps. It's like these unusable like U.S. postal stamps. And basically one stamp is worth like 30 cents. And the way you do it is, is basically cash app to stamp. So you, know, you can cash app someone's family or their friend or whatever, a couple hundred dollars, and they'll, they'll show up at your cell with like a pack of stamps like this big. And then you what? when you buy things. Well, how do they have like, access to, to cash app? I mean, they, they have self act. Sorry, they have access to cell phones. Contraband cell phones, or they have like pay phones people use and say, hey, like cash app, you know, this guy, $100 for me. So like it's cash app constantly in stamps. So nobody, none of the inmates came to you and says, yo, Billy, I, I respect your hustle. Help me out on this. For sure. But I think people, <laughs> for sure. But I just like, I made it a point where I did not like people earn money in stamps, right? Like I did not earn one stamp my entire time in jail. It's like, I'm not here to start a business in prison, like, and make money off other inmates. And that was like my impulse. Like I'm not selling anything. I'm not doing any work for, for stamps. If I can help you, I either will or I won't, but I'm not going to charge you for the services. And I was like, that, that just helped keep things super clean for me and just like never made a dollar off anybody in there and like never attempted to do so it. So you like, kept it quiet, kept your nose clean, did your time yeah. and were happy to get the hell out. Yeah, I just made it peaceful. You know, mm -hmm. It was nice. Okay. Tell us about the new venture. Yeah, pirate. So I guess like the biggest thing that led to the Twitter thread last week on pirate is uh i'm not really sure if i'm allowed to sell securities right now so i decided to basically take the safe route not raise any venture money for pirate but i need to basically be able to pay the salaries of my amazing engineers so launched like a marketing agency just to help cover pirates costs and help survive and that was the impetus for the tweet on sunday have literally gotten 400 plus brands who have reached out um, started working with a couple of them already. So kind of a crazy like marketing inbound, which is great. But this is all to fund the larger pirate division. And that gets back to what I told you, I think one of my core competencies really was, which was taking these people from different industries, bringing them together through these like life-defying experiences, and then finding a way to open up to everybody. So this time we're looking to basically take over a small boutique hotel host all these artists and entrepreneurs there regularly. But instead of trying to bring 3,000 people there for a festival, rigging the entire location with 360 cameras, live streaming it, and then creating this virtual world where anybody can watch what's happening on the island and actually buy in and change what's going on. Seems a lot more uh, digestible, uh, a much smaller, you needed a smaller playing field. So narrow yeah. the playing field and and divide and then start conquering it. And uh, it's super interesting. Uh, oh, so pretty much you want to be able to generate your own capital through marketing activities to then fund your venture because you can't take third party money. Yeah. So like shooting a bunch of TV shows, doing marketing, consulting work on Cameo, just like hustling whatever I can do to uh -huh. get the income, pay restitution and, and pay the team working on Pirate. How deep is the hole? What's the restitution looking like? Uh, 26-ish million, I think, depending on the so day. that's not dischargeable in bankruptcy? Uh, no, it's not. So <laughs> it's, it's there forever. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, listen, uh, staring at, staring into that abyss that was prison was probably uh, a good exercise and helpful in now tackling this challenge and, and digging out of that hole. But it seems like you're, you know, you're, you're trying to have fun with it. You're having some fun. You definitely seem to, to love, love marketing. You love the game. Yeah, it's like, what, what am I going to do? I'm still like have decades of work left in me. So you could pack it in and it's like try to scrape by and survive and not really pay anybody back. Or you can go for it and just like do your best chance of paying people back. And I can't like promise I'm ever going to make millions of dollars again, but I can start now and see where it goes. I hear you. I hear you. Who uh, who from the fire experience are you still in? You're not in touch with Ja Rule uh, as no. at least not yet Ja, but uh, who else are you in touch with? Um. I've really just been starting to see a couple of the former like advisor investor types who I hadn't spoken with in six years. And as time goes by, more and more of them are starting to basically reach back out to me. It hasn't been everybody yet, but I think like just from an emotional need, I'd, I'd love to see everybody who I felt like I truly wronged and like, just like apologize to them, kind of give them my plans for the next like five, 10 years and like life and just talk about what I learned. And yeah, I think like emotionally, just being able to see some of them so far has been pretty satisfying to me. And 
just like still have that need to be liked and respected by them and understanding to do so much to get to that point. But just like appreciate, you know, any chance they would give me. And so you were close, uh, you're close to a number of the, the, the locals on the island. And you yeah. already had relationships there, right? There was one individual who was on the, the Hulu documentary. He seemed to be, you know, a, general, a Caribbean gentleman. He was like, you know, one of your yeah. buddies. And, um, yeah. and so, you know, I, I anticipate that those are relationships or are other people that, you know, you feel the need to make amends to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like, love the Bahamas. I think I have a half a dozen super close friends who are there. Um, Two of my close friends actually flew up the day my sentence ended. They came to New York for the first time. It's kind of funny to see them, you know, running around Manhattan. So super cool to see them. But getting everybody paid back there is like the number one priority right now. And I hope that's something I can do like in some point this year. For sure. Um, Bruce McNall was fun while it lasted. So what did you miss? What did you miss about the good times? Oh, I think my biggest issue was even in the best of financial times, I was so unstable. If I had $7 million in the bank, I would find a way to spend 9 million. So it was like never like a stable time. And right now, like my personal burn rate is as low as it's been since I was literally like 16 or 17 years old. And I'm just like more stable, even though I owe all this money, I'm not like outspending whatever my small income is. And it just feels good. So it's never cool to be the guy in the back, like, you know, praying your, your wire goes through, your credit card goes through when you have hundred people in the room with you. And yeah, it's like as fun or as crazy as a lot of those times seemed, I just was overextended so much. It was just more stressful than enjoyable. It seems like it, right. And I mean, we're circling back to kind of some of the, the precepts of stoicism and in that, you know, that you are a slave to your desires and your needs uh, and your ambitions. Um, and you're, you're trying to find that balance. And some of the critics of stoicism will say, well, that's a, some people say, hey, it's a, a slave's philosophy because you're never going to be ambitious because you're going to be satisfied with nothing. But I guess it's trying to find that right balance right there between being okay with not, you know, being okay with, with uh, a, or, you know, at least a, not an overwhelming or somewhat sub, uh, at least optimizing for for lower material possessions and ambitions, but not letting that rob you of ambition. And if you can find that sweet spot, you find that lane that seems to be, you know, the 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 path to righteousness. I love that. It's how can you get comfortable with the process that you're going through without wishing you're at the destination already? And I think like once that is solved, then that's the best balance in life, where you have that ambition still intact to go through the trials and tribulations of that process, but you don't want to be at the end just now. You want to still have to go through that journey. Yeah, absolutely. So who, uh, cause you do, uh, uh, the way people describe, you know, even your, your pre-fire, uh, career, um, you have many of the trappings of a very, you know, and once again, thin line between the, uh, a Mark Cuban who was just entrepreneurial from day one and could sell ads to the Eskimos and was always trying to do so. Um, and it, there's very, there's a very thin line between like, okay, this person has all, all the trappings and, and signs of a super aggressive, ambitious, uh, born salesman entrepreneur and the, uh, fits the profile of the common con. Cause they're always trying to sell something. They're always trying to sell. I mean, uh, obviously. One, I would ask, I mean, do you believe that you, you know, do you believe that you fit that profile, uh, that you were being a con? Um, yeah, no, actually that's the question. Did you feel at that time that, that you were being a fraud? I think I completely lost the moral compass for a period of time beyond what most people could ever do. And for that, like I'm disgusted with my behavior during that time period. There's no question about it. Um, I sincerely hope it's not just based purely out of fear at this point, but I, I truly feel like I understand like why I went wrong and how it happened and how I just be so adverse to any of that behavior again. And like, once again, I'm still so fresh from punishment. It's so like, there is a chance like emotional reaction now is based on fear and not based on like integrity. But like as a human, I would argue that the found integrity will allow me to not make those mistakes again. I think I have a propensity to still want to be liked, still, you know, want to be impactful, still want to create experiences. So I, I will always have that side that appears to be salesy to me, but if it comes from a good place and it comes from an understanding of process and integrity, 
I think it can potentially lead to a positive outcome. No doubt. No doubt. No, those character lessons and integrity. And that's what they say about a lot of people about, you know, the, the age at which they first experience success and that early success can lead to, uh, uh, can lead to steep downfalls, right? And that, you know, you have not, you, you've, uh, you've been able to develop, you've got the resources and the attention um, and people treating you a certain way, but you haven't developed the character and the integrity. And certainly, listen, and if someone is trying to just purely objectively judge, you know, uh, whether or not you're headed in the right direction or being sincere, you've certainly shown a track record of being able to say the right thing. And that sometimes is not always, uh, always mimicked that y- your behavior is not always matched that. So now you got nothing, nothing but time to show your track record, right? And, you know, there have been great redemption stories before. If we want to, you know, circle back to that word. And, and you mentioned that you, you believe that you're far away from that word being uh, a justifiable description. But, um, you know, whether it's Mike Tyson uh, or, or other people, some people forget there's some people who are very beloved figures right now who are not always so beloved. So I guess it's nothing but time and, and building up a track record of, of your actions matching your words here. Thank you, Matt. So I think it's, Got to embrace the process here and realize we have we have a lot of time. And my biggest thing is there are no deadlines. There are no investors with promise returns. We have all the time in the world. We got to work really quickly, but let's take time to actually launch whatever it is we're working on. One hundred percent. So of the uh, of the four hundred incomings, I mean, obviously, you know, yeah. you don't you don't have to name names if you don't want right. to. But what is uh, what's exciting that you may be working on? You know, what, what do you see exciting in the brand world and the business world right now that that has kind of been incoming that you might have a chance to work on? So I've never had an agency before. Um, I think the one interesting thing is a lot of these well-funded early stage startups have like incredible founders and incredible engineering teams. So for the first time, it's really not based on my ability to go out and hire and attract talent. Like there's talent coming to me who recognizes they have a void. So just a like cool exposure and access to like super strong founding teams. And if nothing else, like the ability to work with amazing people at an early stage. So we'll see where it goes. This is my first like rodeo in the agency world. But once again, it's like enjoying the the quality of people that I'm that I'm meeting. No doubt. So looks like you ended up just where you should have been in the first place as a marketing guy. We'll leave the operations to somebody else. Okay. Yes. Somebody else will take the COO role. Uh, Well, Billy, uh, I love a good serendipitous connection on Twitter. And uh, this was one of them. And, um, you know, listen, once again, we're... Some people may not, you know, some people out, out there with pure schadenfreude, but uh, who, who doesn't root for a great redemption story and for someone who seems to have learned some important lessons to, you know, to, to take a trajectory that, that matches those lessons. So, um, you know, hoping, uh, look forward to what you get involved in and, um, and obviously your, your defeat of Jaw Rule uh, physically and uh, spiritually uh, as well, no doubt. Um, and so, you know, wanted to thank you so much for joining us here today and that $1,800 an hour consultant and let everybody know where they can find you if they need to reach out to you. Thank you very much, at Pirate Billy. Uh, so stay tuned for my attempt at Twitter Threads Part 2 on Sundays. <laughs> oh, it's coming up. Oh, the guy knows how to tease a good one. <laughs> awesome. I haven't figured out what story I want to tell yet, but I'll, I'll drop another story, hopefully get a little bit more... Uh, yeah. Interesting. Nah, jump out the plane, build the parachute on the way down, something that you're all too familiar with. Um, Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy McFarland, thank you once again. This is the prevailing narrative. <laughs>